Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Eniash Brodsky. I'm Stephen Zuber. And we have a special guest with us. Our, hmm, are you going by tail called? You're tail called on our Discord. Yeah, I'm just going to go by tail called. Uh, some people okay. call me tail for short, uh, which I guess is kind of strange given the name, but yeah. All right, then uh, tail or tail called, you are from Denmark and you are one of the leading researchers on AGP, which is what we're going to be calling it because it's much easier to say than autogenophilia. Uh, did I pronounce that correctly? Well, also gynophilia. Gynophilia, okay. Also, quick, and, quick meta note that uh, Jace is around somewhere uh, and hopefully he'll be joining in the next few minutes. Um, so that's that's where he's at. Yes. I delivered that really well. Good job, Stephen. I'm on a roll so far. (laughs) If that happens, we will do a a quick pause for introduction. Yes. Um, But autogenophilia is a word that I just learned a few years ago, and I was surprised this was a word that existed because it, it seemed to me like a word that didn't need to exist in the same way that we don't have a word for humans who have skin. Because you, you don't need a special word for humans who do have skin. But uh, it turns out I was wrong about that. Um, yes. So I guess I should describe it. So that that is a common assumption. So autogynophilia is, describes someone's sort of attraction to being a woman sexually attracted. This, like other sexualities, involves sexual fantasies, which can take on many forms, right? Often it's about... You know, you are a woman and then you do something in the fantasy or you get transformed into a woman or you might be interested in cross-dressing. There's a lot of things that we can get into. Is this a, a state of affairs or condition or whatever you call it that just affects men? That Biological is, men, whatever. Uh, that is a great question, which um, I think a lot of people are a lot more uh, feel a lot more certain about than I do. So I am... Not going to answer it, but I think we can get into, you know, the reasons for or against later. But it's at least, you know, most discussed in men, right? It, because it's unclear if it even matters in women in a sense, right? Whereas in men, if you find it erratic to be a woman, then that is going to lead to a lot of, um, well, it's not necessarily going to lead to a lot of issues. But it's at least a contrast to if you are a man. Uh, of course, that's one of the big controversies because um, it was actually coined in the context of transsexuality or, or like trans research because um, a researcher named Ray Blanchard argued that it is one of the major causes of transsexuality. Just just a, a light, trying to light longer on the point or on the distinction there for a second. So one might say that male to female transgender, uh, a man's desire to become a woman, um, that could be from like this is how I self-identify, this is the true expression of myself, or someone, I forget whose name you just said, could say, it's because I, I find the idea highly erotic. So the um, self-identity concept and so on, that that is sort of the thing that trans people tend to uh, give as the reason whether or not they are autogynophilic, at least you know, according to the standard theory. I, I should probably name this out here. So there, there's sort of two camps, right? There's uh, what's sometimes called gender identity theory or something like that, where, you know, the only reason that one would end up trans is because of sort of an innate uh, feminization in some sense. It's it's kind of vague. But then on the opposite side, we say, okay, maybe 
there are psychological reasons that are not just, you know, a magic gender essence. Um, and also gynophilia would be one. But then it's not necessarily that gender identity is the other, because, you know, what is gender identity? So um, the Planchardian theory instead says, okay, we have also gynophilia on one hand, and then effeminate homosexuality as another one. Hmm. Um, now, uh, I have a lot of problems with both of these camps, so I am sort of a weird person to talk about this. But I, I think I would agree that you know th this notion of gender identity is, to a large extent, something that um, like, like it's sort of complicated. When I was um, introduced to trans topics, so I'm also also gynephilic, and uh, I've sort of been on hormones. I'm on hormones, and you know it, I haven't really properly transitioned, so I'm in a sort of weird in between state. But when I was sort of introduced, I was told that gender identity is the same as wanting to be a woman, right? And hmm. insofar as that's the case, then it's not so much that autogynophilia is an alternative to gender identity, but more that it's a cause of it. But, you know, that, that's very much a framing thing. And, you know, nobody is really combining the two theories anyway. So it's not necessarily something that uh, makes sense as a framing. It seems very strange to me to say that autogynophilia would be a reason to transition because then wouldn't we expect like the vast majority of of males to transition? Yes. I, I mean, okay. So there's many. So, so I guess the starting point is, so, so I guess there's two parts of it, right? How many men are autogynophilic and then how many autogynophiles transition, right? And, yeah. you know, why is this the case, right? Well, so, and autogynophilia might be a spectrum of like zero to 100, right? Yes. You so, know, so and only if you're is, super into it, yeah, is it worth the transition? Th those are important questions. I had always assumed that the, the rate of autogynophilia, again, I didn't know that there was a name for it because <laughs> I thought it was just 100%, is basically 100% as evidenced by the fact that lesbian porn is so popular? Is, <laughs> is this not the case? <laughs> See, now we're getting into a lot of things, right? So um, the thing about lesbian porn is that it's not just autogynophilic men who find it erotic. So a lot of straight men who are not autogynophilic in any sense find lesbian porn hot just because, you know, it's two women. What's not to like? There's twice um, as many okay. boobs and no cock in the way. Yeah. Yeah. So... <laughs> okay. um, so, so it's not that lesbian porn is necessarily the um, absolute indicator of autogynophilia. Um, so there are definitely autogynophiles who are fans of it, but there are also many straight men who are not autogynophilic in any way who are very big fans of it. So that's um, where we get to, I guess that, that's one of my favorite ways of investigating, you know, who is autogynophilic or not, right? That's if you have some hot sexual fantasy, right? Are you then the woman in that fantasy or are you the man? You know, how, how often are you the woman? Because, mm. you know, we, if we ask, you know, how many men are autogynophilic? Well, what does it mean to be autogynophilic? That is, it's a definition question, right? And mm -hmm. there's a lot of uh, philosophies that can go into it. And But what I tend to find is that there are a lot of different sort of um, sexual interests that are sort of correlated. So so the simple one is, you know, you find it hard to imagine yourself as the woman in these sorts of sexual situations, right? Okay. Th then there's some other things. So um, autogynophiles are 
often have sexual fantasies where they, you know, start out as a man and then transform into a woman through magic or something like that. There's actually whole porn genres about that. And that is sort of more exclusive to autogynophiles than the whole uh, lesbian porn or whatever. Not totally, but mostly, I think. Interesting. I hadn't heard about that second kind. What was the second kind? I, I didn't quite catch it. It's called transgender transformations. Depict, say, some man who, you know, gets into some shenanigans and then suddenly, you know, magic happens or technology happens and then suddenly she's a woman now. Okay. Oh, and you said this is this would be a kind of a genre that would be more indicative of uh, AGP. Yes, in, in the sense that, you know, th- there would be very few non-autogynophilic men who prefer that genre. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. There's controversy as to whether or not this is a cause of transgenderism? Um, yes. I, I don't know if we should start with uh, or finish the point about the prevalence first. Sure. We... Uh, let's let's yeah. hold on to the prevalence then. Okay. So the, the prevalence is sort of hard because, you know, as Stephen said, in a sense, it's a spectrum. Like if you consider something like gay men, there's sort of a clear separation. I mean, there's bisexuality. There's all sorts of interesting things that can be said about bisexuality. But there is a sort of bimodal distribution among men where you have some men who are very clearly gay and so then you have some men who are, you know, not uh, very clearly gay. And you, you don't get this nice bimodal distribution with autogynophilia. You get more like, oh, some men are, yeah, I, I guess, you know, if I was a woman, then it would be hard to, you know, look at myself in, naked in the mirror or whatever, right? And then, you know, you have some who are, you know, every single sexual fantasy for their life has, you know, involved being a woman. And then, you know, you have mm. some in between, right? And it's not like there's sort of a clear bump, at least not in any days I've seen. Um, then with the prevalence, there's also another difficulty. So, you know, we, we might imagine, okay, we ask men, for instance, how many of your sexual fantasies do you imagine yourself as a woman, right? And I bet if we did that among your viewers, right, then I bet we would find that, you know, 50% of your viewers, of your male viewers say, oh, I never do that. And then the remainder 50% are relatively evenly spread over all orders of magnitude or frequency, is that just like for demonstration purposes, or is it literally like 50% of men have no AGP at all? So um, it is literally that, but it is literally that in certain kinds of samples. I usually say it's that in online samples because that's where I've seen oh. it. Like if I ask on Reddit or on Astral Codex 10, or, you know, I, I've seen some people ask on. Uh, Facebook? I have no idea why it would also be on Facebook. I mean, you know, you could sort of say, oh, Reddit and rationalists and so on are weird people, right? But Facebook, Mm -hmm. I have no idea. But studies on online samples, as I say, they tend to find that, you know, maybe it's like uh, 30 to 70%. Uh, it, It varies. And then again, we have to remember, you know, not everyone in this are equally also gynophilic, right? If we take the ones where it's, you know, the central sexuality, then that's maybe one in 10 of those. And there are some studies that have attempted to crude uh, representative samples, and they've generally found it to be maybe 3% to 15%. So that's much lower. And that's why I'm sort of distinguishing. Because, you know, the most obvious thing would be to maybe just trust the general ones to be more representative and say, okay, it's 3% to 15%. On the other hand, I've seen some people say, well, maybe, you know, normal people are, you know, not admitting to it. It's it's hard to know. 
has this been studied long enough that they know this is a steady rate or has, has it fluctuated over time? Um, so so it, it fluctuates, you know, from study to study, uh, partly based on the methods and partly based on, on the sample and so on. But I don't think there has been any sufficiently sort of repeated samples that you can say, oh, we have seen this to increase or decrease. But there are some new studies that get low rates, and then there are some old studies that get, you know, approximately the same. But they, they're not directly one-to-one comparable. I've, I've sort of been thinking that I should do a study where I take all of the different ways that people have tried to, you know, estimate the rates and then see how they rank relative to each other, right? Like, you know, some might get higher or lower. And then we could sort of place all of these scales, all of these different methods on sort of a common scale based on that, maybe. But it's always somewhat questionable when you are overly clever with math, right? So, yeah. I had a bit of a realization on something I, I was thinking about earlier, which was kind of some of the competing hypotheses about this might be that some men would transition because of like their innate gender identity and then others would transition because they think it would be really hot to be a girl, right? It's not but, the theory. To, no, no, no. But I mean, to be, yeah. to be unfairly simplistic, but I guess I realized that I'd set up that as a dichotomy and there's no reason it should be. If you feel like I'm a woman and you're, and you currently uh, don't present as one and you want to publicly and physically identify as one, of course, you'd feel like more sexually excited by that, right? You're like, now, now I finally get to like enjoy to look at in the mirror, you know? Um, so, so, I think that so makes sense. That's, now we are getting to sort of the controversy about, you know, why would people say, oh, it's not a cause of transsexuality, right? Be- because there's a lot of thought about, you know, does the causality run in the opposite way, right? So that's most obvious in the case of the lesbian porn thing that any has mentioned, right? Like, if you just sort of take the standard male sexuality and then you say oh you you want to be a woman instead right then you end up with something that could be said to be lesbian right so it's people could question the direction of causality there everyone wants to be a hot lesbian right (laughs) (laughs) um but there's some people who are saying that agp would not cause people to transition yes so so the starting point would be to say okay if you ask agp men right do they want to be women? Then, you know, a lot of them will say, no, I don't. I, I mean, I'm fine with being male. Being a woman would be hot, but being a male is great too. And, you know, if there are many AGP men who don't want to be women, then could we really say that AGP, you know, causes you to want to be woman, right? That, that doesn't seem to match with the base rate. Gotcha. Um, if you then further add, hey, wait, doesn't it seem like, you know, you could have it go the other way around? Then actually we have a non-trivial causal inference problem here, right? What's the other way around? There are a lot of different theories for the other way around, actually. So so the simplest one is just if you hate being male and, you know, you really want to be female, right? Then it makes sense that you would also hate being male and really want to be female in sexual situations, right? But but then there's actually two additional theories, right? So it gets back to what Stephen asked about in the beginning, namely, are any women AGP too, right? Where, you know, some people feel that um, female sexuality in various ways represent, uh, resembles uh, autogynophilia. Um, so they, they will say things like, oh, you know, women like to dress up sexy for their partners and you know a lot of people would say wait isn't it that women do it for their partners then you can talk with women about it and you know some women say well of course women are agp and some women say no what what the heck are you talking about and i am very confused about this point i'm a little confused here wouldn't a woman that's agp basically be someone who feels sexy in her body 
<laughs> so, 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 so that's a uh, common uh, critique of the um, sort of on both sides, right? So, so you know, one side says people are just judging trans women for feeling sexy in their bodies, right? Honestly, I don't necessarily want to say that I know the answer to all of this. I I think there are some very difficult questions because, you know, how how do you define or measure EGP in cis women? And yes, you you sort of get uh, some similar difficulties with, you know, what's the relationship with gender identity, right? So my approach tends to be to say, okay, can we throw some of the things we know about how to do causal inference at it? But I, I guess I should mention a sort of third theory that people also mention, which is that people think that a third way that you know transsexuality or gender identity could cause ATP uh, is by repression. So it, it's a theory I call the masochistic CEO theory because you know often it's phrased as you know if you have a highly stressed CEO, who, you know he, he has to repress all of his you know relaxation because he has this very stressed job then people think that he becomes masochistic and, you know, wants a dominatrix so he can release control. I don't buy masochistic CEO theory at all. I, I don't think it makes sense that sort of if people want something and are repressing it, then it automatically becomes sexy. I, I don't think people have given uh, good evidence of it. You said this was controversial, this idea? Yes, absolutely. Um, this... So the way the trans community rejects the idea that AGP could cause transition. Well, so so so. Or what it, is it they reject? It might be um, good to sort of put it in the bigger perspective, right? So it, it, it's not so much that they reject the idea that you know AGP can cause transition. Like they they tend to say, you know, if that if that's how you self-identify, then you know that's up to you, right? But the concept of AGP is not just something that exists in a vacuum, right? There there are certain groups that talk about it, right? And the most obvious place to start would be with the clinicians who sort of pushed the HP theory, right? According to uh, Ray Blanchard's research, there are two types of trans women. And at the time, only two, though, you know, he is open to the possibility of rapid onset gender dysphoria, but that, that's not necessarily going to make it, trans people more happy about it, right? So let, let's focus on the two types. There's also gynophilic trans women, and homosexual trans women. His theories don't really cover trans men. Like, that's not what his research focused on. So He should I mean, just it, fully commit to the bit and be like, what? Who's there? Who, what's the, who's saying? So, so I, 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 I wouldn't say that he doesn't believe trans men exist. Like, he, he wrote a book about, you know, I, I think it was called something like Treatment of Gender Identity Disorders or something, right? And I, I do have a well, quick question before we keep going with that, though, is that, as we zoom out, is this guy's presumption maybe then that there are two separate causes of uh, like distinct causes of transgenderism and one would be male to female, one would be male to fe- female to male? So the idea is that among trans women, there's the majority who would be called autogynophilic transsexuals who are you know, attracted to women and who are sort of more masculine, uh, who are often fetishistic and who sort of transition later in life. And then the other uh, group is what he calls homosexual transsexuals. They are attracted to men, and already there you, you sort of have a problem, right? Because um, you know trans women identify as women. They wouldn't like to be called homosexual if they're attracted to men. They would like to be called heterosexual, right? But you know that that's the name he gave them in his theory. So homosexual transsexuals would be attracted to men, and they would be feminine, and they would transition younger. 
then the, the claim would then be that most trans women are also gynephilic transsexuals. And as long as a trans woman is, you know, attracted to women, you can safely infer that she is also gynephilic. And that that's sort of especially where the controversy comes, right? So so it's not so much, oh, the trans community doesn't want, you know, people to identify as also gynephilic or to say, oh, that's what matters for me. It's it's the trans community does not like that these uh, clinicians are dictating you transition because of autogynephilia and not because of your innate gender identity. So why does anybody care? Like, just transition or don't transition. And, I mean, it might be interesting research to find out why someone is motivated, but it doesn't really matter in the end, right? That's sort of of where all the other groups come in, right? Because, um, Because one of the other big groups that, you know, talk about autogynephilia. That's uh, what's called uh, trans-exclusionary radical feminists or gender-critical feminists. These gender-criticals, they don't like trans women. They are basically um, saying, oh, we, we need to take away trans women's children because they're going to abuse them and stuff like that. Uh, wait, shit. okay, so so n- n- now I'm making them seem entirely unreasonable. And of course, they are entirely unreasonable. But at the same time, the the opposite side can also be entirely unreasonable, and gender critical feminists they also you know have some entirely reasonable points, such as maybe a subreddit for lesbians should not say that you are transphobic if you aren't attracted to trans women. Okay, I guess the reason why it might matter if you are one type or the other is because if you're still attracted to women, they would not want you in their bathrooms, I guess. But isn't that just, it feels like it's just kind of standard homophobia if someone's got the full transition. I mean, there's a lot of complications, right? First of all, um, a lot of gender critical feminists think if you are also gynephilic, then that must mean that you are, you know, sexually attracted to being a woman. So that must mean you really like your penis, which... I don't understand how that follows. (laughs) Well, well, um... I, I don't think it follows very well. What, what tends to happen, right, is that the gender-critical feminists will go and take the very most aggressive, most problematic trans women. And then they'll say, you know, look at how all trans women are like. They're all, you know, evil right. autogynophiles like this, right? So yeah. in online communities, autogynophilia can sort of function as a boogeyman, right? Like it's, you know, it's it's those crazy people who want to come and rape you and, you know, stuff like that, right? Okay, I see. So we're okay with the um with the like effeminate homosexual from very young age people, but we really don't like the transitioned older in life people. So so then there's also a um, sort of third group within the trans community, right? That there's always going to be the discussion of should we sort of push harder and be less conformist or or should we try to be very nice and let, let others decide how transness works. And mm-hmm. what often happens is that sometimes some random person will go into a trans space and then make a giant post complaining, the trans community has been taken over by evil autogynophiles and, you know, back in my day, you know, everyone was blah, 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 blah. If someone then decides to stink up a billion posts about that and, you know, dominate the entire uh, community with that, then you've also got a problem, right? So there's very few individuals in the trans community who, you know, openly identify as also gynephilic, right? So they can get away with stopping these sorts of posts just by saying, oh, you're not allowed to talk about also gynephilia, right? 
But then that's sort of um, a complicated thing, actually. What do people identify in private versus in public, right? Yeah, it, it's definitely a huge mess, right? Well, I, I now understand why there is this controversy. Uh, I guess, what do AGP people do about that? Just pretend they're not? Or... I, I don't think we actually uh, finished the discussion about the, the causality. <laughs> so I, I don't think we even yeah. started on the yeah. causality. I assumed it was just like like being gay. You just, you know, <laughs> this is an attraction you're, you're born with, more or less. Right. There's the question of, you know, what causes AGP, right? And then the, I guess there's the question of what, what are the effects of AGP. I, I guess, okay, I, I say that because, you know, I subscribe to the idea that AGP is mainly the cause of the associated gender issues and not the way around. So I assume what causes AGP is just having eyes and being able to tell that women are sexy and awesome. <laughs> but but so, perhaps I'm wrong about this. Well, a quick note, so, cute isn't the only definition of attractive, right? Chris Hemsworth isn't cute. So <laughs> I, I, I think nobody really knows what causes AGP. I mean, we, we, we don't even know what causes you know transsexuality, right? You can take homosexuality, right? Nobody knows what causes homosexuality, but it's actually been studied, unlike with AGP, where nobody has studied what causes AGP. I mean, I sort of get the feeling that academia is sort of a wasteland, right? Like, yeah. So, <laughs> so absolutely. To, to some extent, obviously, you know, if if it's going to be politically charged, then you know people are going to be less inclined to study it, right? But at the same time, there's you know not so much funding, and you know the people who study things, like even if they studied it, they would not necessarily get good results, and. Yeah, uh, if you do study it, you don't get published. If it does get published, the place gets boycotted. So, yeah. Well, I, I mean, it's it's not just a question of publications, right? It, it's also a question of a lot of social scientists don't really know what they're doing. So your so, research, for the most part, has been published just uh, published online, and yes. I don't know promoted how you just you have to just talk with other people yourself right there there isn't really a venue for this i mean i I haven't really gone out of my way to promote it unless it's sort of been relevant for some discussion somewhere right have you gotten blowback by researching this from organizations or people that's the sort of funny thing i i haven't really gotten all that much blowback um i mean sometimes people figure this is you know atp it's this evil thing and then they leave an angry comment and then i say oh but you know i am not this evil thing so uh you know then it usually goes well um so huh. i've seen you know a researcher michael bailey do research on the same places right and he gets enormous amounts of blowback and i think it's partly because i try to be nice and he does not try to be <laughs> nice at all uh, of course that then raises the question of to what extent is that because of his irb right like maybe they say oh you have to inform people that you are this evil person and stuff like that i think i have a good understanding of why you get these differences and in and the sort of multiple overlapping factors that sort of get mixed together the the major one is collider bias so so the idea is if you just look at autogynophilic men in general then they are as far as i can tell basically well not entirely but in pretty much any way that you can immediately think of that they are going to be basically like ordinary cis men except they are much more likely to want to be women as i mentioned a lot of them don't right but they're much more likely but then there are also some males who for whatever reason want to be women without being also gynophilic now what happens 
if you look at either trans women or more broadly males who have some sort of gender anything, right? Because, you know, not everyone transitions, right? But if you do somehow filter for those who are somewhere on the trans spectrum, then what, what what's going to happen? Well, we know that we have this group of autogynophilic males who are not all that distinct from other males uh, who are going to be much more likely to be in the group, right? And you might also have some who really have some sort of strong femininity or... So I, I want to say strong femininity, but I think there's a lot of complexities there, but I, I don't think we can fit that all into this call. Let, let's just say they, they have some issues with gender roles, right? So they, they really don't fit in as males, right? Mm-hmm. Now, usually there, there would be no correlation between autogynophilia and fitting in as gender norms because, you know, autogynophilic males are basically the same as others, except they want to be female. But if you filter mm-hmm. to those who have gender issues, right, then you eliminate those who are, you know, completely normal, who, who don't have any femininity and who don't have autogynophilia and who don't have anything else. So what you're left with is a very strong negative correlation between autogynophilia and whatever else might cause a man to want to be a woman. So the the ones that do transition are the ones that have both autogynophilia and other things as well pushing them. That's what I believe. You have to consider not all autogynophiles even transition or want to be women, right? So I think the vast majority don't transition. Yes. So so the vast majority don't transition at all, right? You know, you, you can just sort of think of that from the numbers, right? Like if 3% to 15% of males are autogynophiles, but 0.5% or much less than that. I mean, the numbers differ a lot and, you know, they've been growing and that's its whole other own problem. Yeah, like I, I would never transition until we have full post-transhumanity morphological freedom because like with the current tech, I would just make a really shitty, unattractive woman and that would suck. So uh, so I'm not going to bother. Yes, so that's sort of part of it, right? This sort of thing is association. Another big part, which I think is possibly even more dominant, is homosexual males, like androphilic males. But And I keep saying males because... I sort of want to talk about both cis men and trans women and, you know, but, mm-hmm. but yeah, so homosexual males, they are uh, usually much more feminine than, well, you know, th- there's lots of exceptions, overlapping bill curves, all that, blah, blah. Yeah. You sort of got this separate group, which is sort of uh, fairly cleanly uh, separated. And, you know, it's been thought that maybe they transition under different circumstances to like that they primarily transition in low socioeconomic status. And there's a lot of discussion about that, which is not entirely clear, right? But so, for instance, this is actually where one of the sort of most important practical points come in, which is some people think, okay, we we have ordinary cis men who are happy with being men and so on, right? And then we have Mm -hmm. autogynophic trans women or trans lesbians or, you know, whatever term you prefer who are, they, they seem to be not as feminine and so on as were the androphilic trans women. So to a lot of people, that makes them sort of less trans, right? But th- there's some important complications to that, which is a phenomenon known as desistance. So the idea is you, you can find, you know, some very little boy who is often goes very, oh, I want to dress up in a, as a princess. I sing I'm a body girl, Barbie girl and, you know, only wants to have female friends, can't stand boys, and who really wants to be a girl, right? People might naively look 
at him and then say, oh, that's someone who's going to grow up to be trans. And this is someone who is much more trans than, you know, those autobiophiles. But if you sort of actually look at it, then what often happens is that they desist. So they, they just become happy with being gay men as they grow up. So you can find a lot of gay men who will say, when I was a child, I dressed up as a girl, blah, blah, blah. And that means that it's not simply that they are more trans, right? It's something more complicated. And if there's one thing that's sort of important from the typology in practical things, then I think this might sort of be it. You might have someone who is very overtly feminine from a very young age, where one might think, oh, that's the typical mm-hmm. trans, or like soon to be trans. But, you know, then actually he grows up and is a happy gay man. So it's not mm-hmm. that this is necessarily a strong indicator of adult gender identity, whereas you can have someone who, like me, I showed no signs in any way of being girlish in my childhood, but uh, I, I guess I have uh, more gender issues than many uh, gay men do, many more. Um, yeah. Is there anything to be done about this, or is this just an interesting fact to consider about humans because until we get full morphological freedom it just seems like well okay i guess grow up and and do the best you can with what it turns out to be you are of course that that's like the controversial thing right because the trans community will want to make transition more widely available for teens right and mm-hmm. That actually means that today you it seems like there are quite a few autogynophiles who transition in early puberty. And that is something that some of the original uh, Blanchardians, uh, some of them are very critical and say, you know, we, we are you know expanding it beyond what can be reasonably diagnosed. A trans woman who is called Anne Lawrence sort of considered this to be the best case, like if you could expand it. So transitions would be accessed early for autogynophiles. The big names within the Blanchardian community would generally be opposed to it. But, you know, how much of that is because that's what the theory says and how much of that is because it's the people who are more critical of trans people will also tend to be the ones who who adopt these unpopular theories. Why would the Blanchardians be against people transitioning at a younger age? That comes back to the issue that you are expanding transition for individuals who might be able to grow up to be happy as gay men. There's sort of a few different ones, right? So this researcher called Michael Bailey, he's sort of one of the leading ones. He says that he doesn't really think that autogynophiles actually care about passing. The, and I think he's you know completely crazy about that. You can sort that of sounds say ridiculous. that. But, yeah. Exactly. (laughs) That's the entire point. So it's sort of, he's sort of the, you call me the leading researcher in the start, right? But, you know, he's sort of the, I guess we could call him the second leading researcher. But credentially, he, more people would, of course, respect him than would respect me because, you know, he's a big university professor and, you know, he's had decades defending this and so on, right? But you know, it, it's ridiculous. He's totally clueless, right? And and that's sort yeah. of what, what I'm saying about academia is sort of a wasteland, right? Uh, I don't understand. What could he possibly think trans people want to get out of transition if it isn't passing as the, the sex they wish well, they were born in, so, so, I guess, if that's the way to put it? I guess that there are several paths to it, right? So the, the first is that, unfortunately, a lot of trans women don't pass, right? Um, yeah. A second factor is that he doesn't have straightforward 
access to trans women's entire histories and especially, you know, their private sexuality, right? Obviously, the simplest thing you could tell about a trans woman, does she pass? So, Well, the thing is, if they <laughs> pass, you can't tell they're a trans woman, you know? Well, well, it depends because, you know, activists and so on who say, I'm trans and... Okay, sure, yeah. Um, but in general... You know, there's a lot of things to be said about that, right? But the point is sort of autogynophilic trans women seem to pass worse than androphilic trans women. And I don't actually know why. I've seen some theories like autogynophilic trans women transition later. And, but Michael Bailey would say, well, it's it's because autogynophilic trans women don't, to the same extent, decide to transition based on whether they could pass. Mm, uh, that's okay. That's what he writes in the book. That clearly doesn't apply to all autogynophilic trans women and the autogynophilic trans women who do transition without passing, they will still say it would obviously be much better if they could pass. So I think he's just clueless. Yeah. When Blanchardians think of autogynophilia, they don't necessarily think about, oh, I fantasize about being a lesbian. They think you have some man who wears, you know, a lot of uh, fetishistic clothes and maybe pretends to be pregnant and uses tampons and stuff like that, which is, mm. um, it's it's sort of a very different uh, presentation than, than the one we discussed in the beginning. And I ought to think that it's a combination of autogynophilia with various sorts of fetishism and possibly other things that there's a lot of people who believe that autogynophilia is very closely correlated to masochism, right? Uh, I didn't know that. Is that a thing Blanchardists believe? Yes. There are various uh, pieces of evidence that people might cite for that. So, for instance, I think there was a study where they took men from a cross-dresser club and compared them to men from various other sex clubs and found that the men in the cross-dresser club were much more often masochistic. In a sense, it's sort of a very natural connection to make if you look at many of the presentations that autogynophilia has in the um, media. But but when I then looked at it statistically, I found that there was no connection between autogynophilia and masochism after adjusting for general uh, unusual sexual interests. So, okay. so it's a weird thing where what people see in various anecdotal situations does not necessarily match what people see in, um, or at least what I see in statistics. <laughs> You said, uh, actually, I think it was before the podcast, but you said that you split with Blancardians a while ago. Was this one of the things that caused you to split the fact that they were mixing up these masochism no. and... So so by that time, I think I had already split quite a bit. The thing that was the biggest or like most central part of the split is about something called meta-attraction or pseudo-bisexuality. The, the old school Blanchardians call it pseudo-bisexuality. But 4chan decided that the pseudo was offensive. So, okay, let, let's start with what is it? There's a lot of autogynophiles who are, you know, totally straight and who say, you know, I'm not attracted to men at all. I'm attracted to women, right? But mm-hmm. they find it hard to be a woman and then have sex with men. So, so this meta-attraction or pseudo-bisexuality, it's that... Autogynophiles can find it attractive to um, have sex with men as a woman or while cross-dressing or things like that, mm-hmm. even though they are not in a classical sense attracted to men. And that that's sort of a very controversial idea, right? Because people say, wait, isn't that unfalsifiable? Like, that, that, you know, they're having sex with men, what more could you want? So I actually think that Blanchardians have a good point here that meta-attraction is a... But 
what they then so, tend to say is, oh, meta attraction is the only possibility if some autoguy in a file expresses something that resembles attraction to men. There's no bisexual autoguy in files. There's especially no antrophilic, like exclusively homosexual autoguy in files. So wait, hold on. Meta attraction being the idea that you act out an attraction role without actually being attracted to something? There's sort of a few different ways you could see it, right? But one of them would be you are attracted to being a woman who is attractive to men, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like the precise feelings within it has been precisely studied. It seems to me that, you know, different people will emphasize different parts of it. So I tend to say, okay, what are the phenomena that we focus on rather than the exact definition, right? And the the phenomenon is an autogynophile who is not attracted to men, but who finds it erotic to have sex with men in some feminized position. I'm also confused as to why why that doesn't just count as being bisexual. So, so that's actually a very interesting question. So if, if we go back to the case most, or, or like straight men in general like lesbian porn, right? And mm-hmm. gay men like uh, gay male porn, right? So you, you can sort of see what is a man's sexual orientation based on what sorts of porn he finds erotic. And the mm-hmm. benefit of doing this is that you do not introduce the confound of saying, is he aroused by the uh, people in the porn or by something else? So, for instance, if you show gay men straight porn, then they will find it hot because there's a man in it. But, you know, they, they're not straight, right? They, they, they just like the man. Um, oh, okay. So, so, so you need to somehow isolate the variables, right? And if you sort of try to isolate it for meta-attracted autogynophiles, then you say, here is some gay porn depicting some very manly, masculine, burly men. How hot do you find it? And uh, not really. And so, so that that's sort of a clean way to see the distinction, right? But of course, the question then is, what is the distinction in practice, right? For instance, one of the controversial things is like, does this have implications for relationships, right? Mm-hmm. And it's hard to tell, in my opinion, because I think that there are some autogynophiles who are attracted to men in the classical sense. There's, you know, classically bisexual men who just happen to be autogynophiles. I, mm-hmm. I also believe that some uh, homosexual men can be autogynophiles. If you find an autogynophile who is in a relationship with a man and, you know, it, it works fine, right? Is that because of meta-attraction can work fine for relationships or is it because this person is androphilic? I don't know. How would I know? You said a homosexual person who's uh, an autogynophile. Is that basically just the the same thing as the early transitioning feminine case that, that was mentioned earlier? No. Um, so yeah. um, they are sort of similar to how heterosexual autogynophiles are mostly indistinguishable from heterosexual men unless they transition or do something like that. Then mm-hmm. homosexual autogynophiles seem mostly indistinguishable from homosexual men. Now I don't know, I don't know to great detail because you know it's it's not something I've researched very much, and there are not very many homosexual uh, autogynophiles. But this is sort of where we uh, get into the part where I split from Blanchardians, right? Because they will say autogynophiles can't be attracted to men. I mean, they, that, that's just what they, they they can't, right? They they will always attribute it to meta attraction. Whereas I think, you know, sometimes it's meta attraction, sometimes it's not. I have a hard time thinking of like, like when you say your stereotypical um, straight cis man, I totally see that. But when you say like your stereotypical gay man, there's like at least three or four types of 
gay people that I think of with one being, you know, the fabulous guy. But then I also think of like, you know, the leather daddies and the bears and stuff like that. So I don't I don't have a just typical gay male stereotype that I can go to. Is there one in particular you were thinking of or am I thinking about gay male culture incorrectly? Um, so I guess I shouldn't uh, claim to necessarily be an expert on gay male culture, right? But if you start with, you know, an ordinary uh, straight guy, right? And, you know, then, of course, you know, he's attracted to men instead of to women. And, you know, he has relationships and probably a lot of sex with men. And then his voice is probably noticeably or like just on the edge of noticeably uh, feminine. Like you, you might wonder, you know, is he gay or is he just, you know, mm-hmm. feminine, right? And you know his his interests are also significantly shifted to oh he likes you know uh, okay so, so we're thinking so more the, of the more yeah. of the effeminate i mean it's not that you know he he's necessarily massively effeminate i mean there's a range right you know some are very effeminate and some are not right so uh, all right i i was just trying to <laughs> trying to get the yeah. the image in my head so, so so it's kind of difficult right because i tend to deal with abstract numbers like oh we have two standard deviations of difference or blah 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 right you know so how mm-hmm. does one translate that to everyday experience right all right so looping back to my original question you said something about like you you split the, with the blank guardians because they were wrong about and auto androphilia uh, not really split. So, so also androphilia, right? That that's one of the early things. So, so when I got started studying all of this stuff, I didn't actually get started studying all the autogynophilia questions in the beginning, because um, I was around, you know, in the trans community in in with Les Wrong and like trans people in the rationalist community had their own things that they emphasized, and that's actually where I got started researching. When it comes to the rationalist trans community, then they didn't really talk all that much about autogynophilia, if at all. I mean, as Jace said, you know, sometimes they did, right? But, you know, it, it, it wasn't a central thing. But what they noticed was there are so many rationalist trans women. Um, yeah. And it's one of the things we're famous for. <laughs> yes. So what they actually had in terms of ideas was, you know, maybe there's some sort of connection with nerdiness, right? Like a lot of trans women are famously nerdy computer people. I think it's something like, for instance, the processor architecture for many mobile phones was designed by a trans women or something. I, I'm not entirely sure. But trans women have been noticeably nerdy for a while. And that that's sort of what I was um, trying to study in the beginning. Is there some sort of connection between nerdiness and, you know, gender something mm-hmm. i spent uh, some time on that and i didn't get much i mean i got some i i think i got some weak ambiguous signals but it wasn't very clear so so at the beginning i also engaged in various debates about trans rights and did some research related to that and so on i actually did test for autogynophilia in one of my very earliest surveys but i made a calculation error which threw off the results to make it look like there was no effect <laughs> so oh, that's no. <laughs> yeah um but but then you know at some point i met various people some of them prefer to remain anonymous so i should not get into too much detail but i sort of got a course correction where many of my uh, misconceptions about blanchardian theory and you know so on were corrected and i started studying also gynophilia again and then i suddenly got super strong results way stronger than anything i had gotten while studying nerdiness and that's sort of how i uh, connected into that but 
at the same time, you know, I, w- I was doing surveys where, you know, I, I asked, I just posted surveys in public forums and then got a lot of responses. So I started both males and females, right? And I got mm-hmm. lots of women who reported various forms of autoandrophilia. And, you know, they, they also were much more likely to want to be male. So the entire notion that, you know, it's only autogynephilia and not autoandrophilia that exists. I saw no reason to believe that. I mean, I got so many autoandrophiles. There was no shortage of them. There was a woman who was like, oh, yes, that's absolutely me. Here, let me give you, you know, a very long description with, you know, I've gotten a pega and I like to suit and stuff like that. It's talking about, you know, how it varies with hormones and so on. So, okay. so she, she was not transitioning. I mean, I don't see why it wouldn't be a thing. If if there's one, why not the other, right? Right. Um, but, I mean, Blanchardians, the Blanchardian researchers are just, nope. When I've challenged them, they said things like, oh, I, I don't think that um, females can be paraphilic. Or, you know, they they said, oh, I, I think that it's social contagion. They say, oh. Wait, what is, what is paraphilia? Oh, that, so that, <laughs> that that's a big uh, question, right? So... Paraphilia is just sort of a uh, euphemism treadmill for sexually deviant or perverse. Um, Like, you know, originally clinicians would diagnose people as perverse, but then perverse became a slur. And then, you know, they needed a new word to describe someone with unusual sexual interests. Is this just another term for being kinky? um, Sort of. I mean, I I think kinky... Uh, sort of more connotes BDSM, right? You you can describe someone who like is really attracted to trans women as kinky, but it's it's sort of weird. Hmm. Okay. I always just assumed kink was anything that is outside of standard, you know, straight missionary position. Yeah, I, I mean, simple I, stuff. I also actually I mean, maybe I am wrong. No, so so I actually sort of had the same uh, tendency, but I sort of found that after some experience with it that it seems to mentally correlate for people with the bdsm i don't know i i should i i can't say that i can't say that i'm an expert in the exact labeling of kinky but yeah well i have no experience with the bdsm scene so maybe that is the case of course the, the trouble with the term paraphilia is that it's very controversial and the reason it's controversial is because you know what is the archetypal example of a paraphilia it's pedophilia. Uh, be- oh, okay. Right. We can uh, list some more examples. Okay, how about exhibitionism, voyeurism? Mm-hmm. You know, how about mm-hmm. paraphilic rape? Um, there are all of these sort of taboo sexual interests. Um, zoophilia, you know, all, all of those, right? And their their claims that women don't have those. Yes. So, so at least for some of these, it's somewhat more understandable. So, you know, if if you look at who gets uh, uh, incarcerated for rape, right, then it's 99% men or whatever, something like that. Yeah, well, I mean, that's because men are violent and aggressive. Well, yeah, but the sex difference is bigger for rape than for other crimes, as I understand. I mean, uh, it's some time since I've been running the numbers, but I believe it is bigger there. Okay. Uh, but but I, I, I sort of agree that it's not indicative of a general tendency for men to be more paraphilic. 
And I think you can sort of think about it, right? So, okay, if... I mean, I could totally agree that men are yeah. more paraphilic, but there's obviously women that are as well. Like, yeah. have they met more than a couple dozen women? <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, so the, the section is sort of weird. Actually, let, let, let's start with the rape thing, right? So, because rape is sort of interesting. It's... If you just think about it, for for instance, from an evolutionary standpoint, then it seems to me that there would be more times where it's evolutionarily advantageous for men. And you know, of course, that's not you know that doesn't make it morally right, but evolution would sort of set the sex difference in mm-hmm. a sense, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you you can also sort of think, okay, you know, the the stereotypical rape that you get uh, arrested for that that's directed towards you know uh, strangers, right? And you know mm-hmm. who who wants to have sex with strangers? Oh, that's men again, right? Mm-hmm. So so you mm-hmm. you you sort of got all of these specific factors related to these specific taboo paraphilias that would make them more mm-hmm. male skewed. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think if you look at some other paraphilias, then they're not necessary. I mean. Uh, I, I think, you know, Ada found that women are more likely than men to be uh, masochistic or something. Mm-hmm. Different things appeal to different people. Who knew? <laughs> right, right. So they sort of have this strange assumption that, you know, also androphilia can't exist because female paraphilias can't exist. That's okay. That just sounds like stupid. I mean, there, there were the previous stupid things. <laughs> so... <laughs> So yeah, so also androphilia is the thing you you know when when I began with uh, with all of this research, I sort of ended up in contact with Michael Bailey and all of these people, right? And I thought you know okay he's wrong on this also androphilia thing, but he's been right on a lot of things about also gynophilia. Uh, I I didn't know all of th- th- there are a lot of things I've since learned about with for instance the passing thing and so on. Um, but but at the time I thought you know okay I I can probably explain to him if he gives me some time and so on actually there there's some point in this autoantrophilia thing right but he ended up you know inviting me to various places like he um, he has this mailing list called Sexnet and you know he, he, we've also discussed some research right but mm-hmm. you know eventually I think it became clear that um, he is just you know not even trying so I guess. The the question now that occurs to me is I I always simply assumed that uh, AGP was a at least a contributing factor to uh, male to female transition because it just seemed obvious from me based on where <laughs> I was coming from. But um, like how common is it the other way around where autoandrophilia is a is a um, female to male conversion driver? Because that- I don't ever hear that talked about. <laughs> yes, and and that's sort of the thing, right? So. It's strange because it doesn't get talked much about. But if I look at the numbers, like if I ask a bunch of women, "Hey, do you want to be a man?" and you know, "Do you uh, are you also androphilic?" then it seems like I get similar effect sizes. So you know, what's going on? And I think that one thing that happens is that all of these uh, elaborate, very fetishistic forms, and you know, things like forced feminization and so on. Um, for whatever reason, they don't seem to um, to show up as much among women, like in also androphilia. So I wonder if there's sort of a tendency to um, for it to be less obvious that because a lot of people find that if you have some sort of um, also gynophilic sexuality that clearly differs from just the gender reversed, then they find it more credible that it would be the cause of 
the transition than the consequence. If a woman fantasizes about, you know, having a penis and, you know, using that for sex, okay, is that because she wants to be a man or is it the reason she wants to be? Whereas, you know, if you have some sort of elaborate gender transformation set up, then a lot of people find that more obviously causal. I'm not sure I agree with that. And there's a sort of a big complication with that. You know, causal inference is hard. And I thought a lot about it. But the point is basically, I think also androphilia might be less, look less weird to people. Hmm. Why, why do you think that would look less weird to people? So I don't know what causes it to look less weird. I, I, it's just that if you look at the stories that people talk about with also androphilic sexuality and then compare them to the stories, then, you know, th- there's a lot of overlap between the stories, but most of Maybe the weird be- stories are from the autogynophilic males and not from the files. Maybe it's because the tomboyism has already been accepted in, at least in Western European society for hundreds of years at this point, that it probably doesn't seem like as big of a jump. That is an, a common uh, hypothesis. There's also the hypothesis that, you know, Freud's penis envy concept, like that it ends up... <laughs> <laughs> okay. no, no, but that, that, you know, someone might say, Oh, I have fantasies where you know I I have a penis. Why might that be? Oh, I, that that must be the thing Freud talked about, right? And, you know, mm. it's, it's not at all the thing Freud talked about. You know, I I think okay. I think Freudian stuff is quite dumb generally, but yes, you you can sort of see how it would sort of absorb the stories, right? Yeah. So we're running late. Uh, I guess there were two things that I wanted to um, make sure we touch on before we wrap things up. Um. You said much earlier in the episode while we were talking, uh, but what is that gender identity anyway? And I don't know, we'll come back to that or, or something along those lines. And so, I don't know, did did you have a thought about what is gender identity anyway? Um, <laughs> right. Um, I, I think the trouble is that, you know, it's it's one word that gets used to refer to many things, right? There's the whole child psychology thing where you know you notice that boys and girls at a certain age boys will be all ah girls are icky i I don't want anything to do (laughs) with them and you know they will you know pay a lot of attention to men to sort of mimic the men you know are there any boys that actually believe that or is that just like a game uh i think i did a poll on it but but i can't remember the results and steven are you still there yeah, I was reading the Wikipedia page for some of this stuff, uh, so I missed the last thing you said. But, yeah, <laughs> I've never, I've never ever... heard of any of these people, and yeah. I'm blissfully unaware of all of the like political history and stuff. And so, yeah. as you guys were talking about that, I'm like, what am I missing out on? And it looks like there's a big Wikipedia page. So, did, what, what was the question? Did you ever have a period in your life where you actually thought like girls are icky and I should stay away from them? Because I've always thought that was just like a game for some reason. Uh, you're asking me if I remember my childhood. Um, <laughs> that's my first mistake. Well, that that sort of rings true. I mean, certainly it's it's perceived it's presented enough in TV. Um, yeah, but ha- when has Hollywood ever lied to us? I feel like it's the kind of thing that like I probably acted like I believed, but I don't know if like I don't know if if ten year old Stephen could probably be said to have beliefs. Like, <laughs> right. you know, so I think I just did stuff. Yeah, like all the boys around me would do that, and so I like joined in. But like yeah. now, I'm wondering: is that just literally everybody in the entire world? But 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 the, the important part is sort of you know, ch- child psychologists would say, "Oh, your gender identity is the thing that makes you do what all the boys are doing, rather than do what all the girls are doing." Well, um, okay, <laughs> that, that was just because that was what the other boys were doing. 
Yes, but you know, they, then you know, there are some boys who do what all the girls are doing, and hmm. not what all the boys are doing. And, you know, what's going on with that? And for instance, the the girls they don't do what all the boys are doing; they do what all the girls are doing. Yeah. So, so the sort of the developmental psychology concept, right? Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not sure I'm a big fan of it because you know it's it's sort of very blank slatist, uh, but you know that that's a whole thing for another discussion. Though I, I've become closer to gender blank slatism over time as I've learned things. So, I mean, I'm very not blank slatist, but I think that there are some cases where it's worth thinking about it that way. It seems to me that based – so starting just from my own experience, but then fortunately being very gratified by Ayla's polls, I believe like the majority of humans just don't really have much of a gender, just gender blank, blank slateism and slot into the roles that are assigned. And then there's a few people on the fringes of either sex that are like, oh, yeah, no, I'm totally this gender. And, uh, and they so, kind of set the, the rails for everyone else. I don't think that's uh, correct. So, so actually, no? one of the things that got me started on the the whole research thing was that uh, because now we get into some of the other kinds of gender identity too, like um, do you want to be a man and so on, right? One one of the things that got me started on was a poll on Les Wrong that asked about a concept called cis by default, right? So, so yeah, the yeah. idea that's that's what's yeah we were talking about more or less. That's yeah. by default idea, or also, which is basically just the idea that everyone is a gender, more or less. Well, well so, so what the polls on Les Rang tended to find, and also polls on other things, you know, other places, I think, they, they tended to find that it was more like, you know, 50 50. Oh, okay. Yeah. That, that's and, more and, than I was expecting. Yeah. And, and then there are also various studies where boys have been raised as girls for various reasons. There, there are basically two reasons that has happened. So there was one guy, time where. Um, a circumcision went very wrong. Uh, his penis was, I, I can't remember how badly it was, but I think it was like basically destroyed. So they went, mm-hmm. oh, uh, a boy without a penis, that's basically a girl, right? So so uh, <laughs> let's... Uh... <laughs> right. <laughs> how can you tell the difference, right? <laughs> right. So, so they went and, you know, decided that they should raise him as a girl and that went terribly wrong but you know th- then there are people who say oh maybe the reason it went terribly wrong wasn't because um, be- because of anything innate maybe it was because the doctor made the boy do sex play with his brother and that, that seems Wait, like what? a <laughs> right so that that's a giant giant sort of Bizarre. Is that a thing that happened? <laughs> yes. It. Uh, so. It, wow. It's... Okay. That would fuck people up. <laughs> so. So. Um, so. Uh, luckily slash unluckily, um, the experiment was tried something like uh, I don't know twenty or fifty more times on um, w- without any of the weird sex play that I it's very messed up. But yeah, what what they tended to find. So so that that was with a different condition. And then you know messed up circumcision. That was I, I don't know what it was, but um, what what they found there was that um, some proportion of the time, one of the studies said you know fifty percent of the time they have a strong masculine identity and you know reject the rearing. But sort of if you look into it, it's sort of unclear because there were a lot of individuals who um, so at first it was like I don't know seventy to eighty percent who were very. Uh, opposed to being reared as female they they hadn't been told they just didn't fit in after like you know they they had been reared from fairly young but mm-hmm. it just didn't 
catch on, right? But but then you know some of those eighty percent they then seem to adapt to it eventually. So so okay. after they sort of cooled down, then it was you know maybe fifty fifty or so. But you know okay. then then the, you know the, there's questions to be raised about ones that adapted did they truly adapt or did they not? Right? You know who knows. Right. Um, so I, I tend to go with it's around 50-50 uh, how strong of an identity people have. So that sort of forms the the uh, foundation for much of my research. My, my theory is, suppose we want to figure out why people are trans or like why, why would someone want to be the opposite sex, right? Well, mm-hmm. if we notice that among men, there's, you know, a huge range where going from all the way to, you know, it would be a fate worth, worse than death to be a woman to, oh, yeah, I, I think it would be totally cool. Like ju- just among ordinary men, then there must be something that, you know, makes them go one way or another with regards to feeling this, right? I mean, it's obviously not going to be very... Uh, important because you know almost all of them want to be men even if they don't want to very strongly but if we think about okay what happens if you take these factors that generate all this variation within the normal range and then extend it out to the uh, extreme ranges like for instance if you take someone who is very autogynephilic and then you add in whatever thing can make non-autogynephilic men go from oh being a woman would be the worst to uh, being a woman would be kind of cool but also i like being a man right couldn't that take an autogynephile who's you know sort of on the fence and go all the way to like severe gender dysphoria because you know if you think about it you know it's a wide range right mm-hmm so, so that that sort of forms the foundation for my research. And actually, ju- just recently this uh, month, I actually made some significant progress on it because I recently started uh, a new type of research that makes it much easier to do qualitative studies. So what I found was kind of obvious in retrospect, which is gender conservatism, like the classical macho men who, you know, think, you know, it's very important to be manly and so on. They mm-hmm. are more satisfied with uh, being male right whereas someone who thinks you know hey maybe there are many genders and the the mm-hmm. more um, gender liberal or gender progressive or whatever they are much much more you know open to being women so okay. so of course that, that then again raises the question of you know is it causal or not right because you could easily imagine you know all sorts of things like gender liberalism attracts you know the sorts of people who would be more gender bendy, right? Yeah, I would imagine someone who is trans would never be a gender conservative, right? Uh, well, so so <laughs> there are a lot of trans people, right? Uh, so uh, so there are definitely some who are who are gender conservative. It's something I've at times been up in debates about it. Huh. Okay. But so anecdotally. I, I don't know if it's true, but anecdotally, it seems to possibly be more a thing about among the uh, homosexual transsexuals, the, the more feminine ones who are attracted to men and so on, right? Mm-hmm. They uh, are more gender conservative or more gender liberal? More gender conservative, anecdotally. I mean... Oh, okay. Uh, but, but you know, I, I don't know. But then the question is, is it causal or not, right? So... I, I think there are reasons to believe it to be causal. So so the, the simplest one was, you know, 
a lot of this came from a qualitative study, right? Like I asked men who were, you know, very to one end or another with the gender identity, like men who were like, I would like to try being a woman versus men who were very conservative. And and they were the ones who sort of gave out, oh, I'm, I think it's because of my political beliefs, right? So, so it's not like they said, I have joined conservatives because, you know, I am a very strong male. Of course, the trouble is then I'm relying on their inference. I have no idea how they made the inference that this is the reason, right? So if, if we wanted to right. further substantiate this, then, you know, we should zoom in and, you know, ask and, and you know, study closer, you know, how, how did they actually arrive at that conclusion, right? Mm-hmm. But but I think there are other reasons to believe that it's causal. What, one of them is that uh, gender progressivism wasn't really correlated with autogynophilia. You know, if autogynophilia causes you to want to be a woman and wanting to be a woman just then causes you to be, you know, gender progressive, then autogynophile should also be gender progressive. If you think about the effect sizes, then actually it, it's kind of hard to detect. It's so- it's a whole deal, right? <laughs> What what is the takeaway here that AGP is not influenced by gender conservatism? AGP seem to be independent of gender conservatism, and my thought is that if AGP and gender conservatism are roughly independent, but but both correlate to to uh, gender identity, then the simplest way you would end up with that uh, situation would be if both of them are causes of gender identity. Actually, th- this leads to a fun thing, which is I used to weigh this simplicity point very highly, right? Because, you know, Occam's razor, like that, that's what you're supposed to do as a rationalist, right? Yeah. But but the trouble is you don't actually need you, you don't actually need to add very much complexity before you get a totally different theory. And you know, if you think about it in social science, is anything truly simple? Like surely there's a lot of different things going on in people's <laughs> lives. So so mm-hmm. I actually no longer think that, you know, so basically, gender identity is complicated, and you don't have an answer, a simple answer to it. Well, so so um, so I think there are some reasons uh, beyond that to believe it's causal, and that is that I think uh, causality tends to um, to go from the most varied thing to the less varied thing, right? Like if you have some factor that's you know much bigger than anything else, then you know it it has many more opportunities to affect things, right? And now, if yeah. if you think about you know politics, right? Like people have this giant tribalism thing, and you know values and politics is in a sense this giant thing. It's it's not necessarily the thing that one would notice as being a giant thing, but mm-hmm. but it is this okay, giant so it, thing. So gender identity is strongly influenced by your politics is a major takeaway. That that would be my uh, takeaway, and that that's sort of the big progress I've made recently. Huh. Okay. So, sort of the reason I think it's a big piece of progress is because um, it actually answers my original question of why are nerds so trans? Because mm-hmm. nerds are much more gender progressive. Oh, well, that uh, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, I'm inclined so to agree with that. Sense, nice things about nerds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so in a sense, you know, I, I'm done. I, I managed to do it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you have uh, found the answer, and now you can retire to, to Haiti or something. <laughs> um, yes. Or Fiji. Yeah. So, so there, well, there's actually a funny thing because people thought that you know, autogynophilia was closely related to nerdiness, right? Because mm-hmm. there are so many nerdy trans women. But now I think, oh, it make like like because people have then tried to study, okay, is autogynophilia related to nerdiness? And they haven't been able to come up with much. And now 
we actually have an explanation for why they wouldn't come up with much because also guy and nerdiness maybe they're just independent and you just thought yeah. they were related because nerdiness and gender progressivism are related that is pretty darn brilliant and i like it and we really should be wrapping up here soon uh steven is there anything you wanted to ask or comment on before we wrapped up no i mean i was quiet for most of that I, like i said it's kind of just i didn't have any preconceived thoughts on this this is the first time i knew what agp stood for um there were a handful of times where people talked about like different camps of whatever sides of this this dispute or something and they would be like oh yeah blanchardists or whateverists and i guess is this just me or is like when you when you label something as like a scientist name slash ist or dash ist, isn't that like a sign of an underdeveloped field of study? Like uh, you you don't say that person's an Einsteinist or a Newtonian or a Newton- yeah, Newtonist I mean, or whatever, right? I like mean, you you do talk a lot about the study of Newtonian mechanics and you know, but you don't call reality. somebody a, a Newtonist. You know what I mean? Well, we we do kind of sometimes refer to people as Bayesians, so uh, yeah, that I guess is also I, true. My my other my other thought on that was like Darwinist isn't like a real word unless like you're a creationist name calling an evolutionary scientist. The, the, I mean, the, there was like the Darwinian evolution. There was. I mean, that went like that was when it was underdeveloped, right? That and, and I think I'm just I think I'm kind of talking out my ass here. I just it, to me that like you know I you mean some some, of... some people like it, some people don't like it, right? I I find it helpful to have the term but you know no, then, then, we, then we end up with weird terms like post neo blanchardian and things like that so it's like i think if you ever post neo anybody you're past that that field of science <laughs> or like you're, you're past that whatever the position was <laughs> that, that could be my that'll be, that'll be the, the well, stand i take so so blanchardians are the ones that believe agp actually does exist which is good for them but for some reason don't believe that women can have any kinks so uh you know i, I guess just take the good stuff from well, any, it's, any it's, given it's field sort of, it's sort of complicated because then they will say oh actually women can have kinks if society makes them have it and weird things like that like it, there's a whole thing but yeah it seems strange to try to break down kinks of of innate versus learned because i mean isn't there a whole lot of overlap in in there i think blanchard would agree with that okay so a bunch of interesting things to learn from a bunch of interesting groups and uh don't marry yourself to any particular ideology i guess (laughs) and if people really want to know about this stuff where can they find uh work that you've done or what where do you write stuff uh, so um, in in theory, I have a um, a uh, you know blog. I, d- I don't post super often to it, uh, but it's called surveyanon.wordpress.com. Uh, I think I think you are able to add links below the uh, yep podcast. So I will get you the links, um, and then I hang out in some uh, discords, um, including in uh, in uh, the Bayesian conspiracy. Discord, so yeah. you can talk with me there. Excellent. Cool. Well, thanks for coming uh, around right. and uh, diving into this stuff. It's it's interesting. I Like I said, as soon as I'd heard of it, I felt like I was out of my depth, but it made for good listening. So, Yeah. That's good. I guess people transition for a number of reasons, and we just should not care why and let them transition if they want to transition, right? Well, that's, a, um, that, that's of course, a big debate on its own, right? Um, I, Why is that I, a big I, w- I would tend to agree with you here, right? 
I guess you could invite Zach Davis on because he has a um, a bunch of uh, thoughts about not necessarily that people shouldn't transition, but you know that there there are some uh, problems that appear, and I think he has thought more about those problems than I have. I mean, I think there's definitely downsides to transitioning. There's, like I said, a good reason I haven't. Mm-hmm. But if, if people decide they they like the upsides more than the downsides, let them go at it. Well, I think so, when you say so, don't care, we shouldn't care why. Like I think Jay said it really well. Like you know, if you're just going to make up a reason and you know say that publicly about why people are doing something, and then as long as you let them do it, like it doesn't matter. I feel like that's a weird stance to take. Like there's there's a stigma that that can attach. Like. If you if you were to say why do women get abortions because they love killing babies, but actually I think if we just, we just let them do it, they're just a bunch of baby murdering psychopaths, right? So like, I, I, but I, what I'm saying is I don't think that letting them do it is like you know a green light to say well we we can just make up whatever justification we want about it, right? Why don't we just ask people? Yes, I guess, but a lot of people have different answers, and I like killing babies is a bad reason to do things, but like. I would like to be a woman. I find it erotic. It's not a bad reason for doing something. So if it isn't hurting other people, what's the big deal? I, I guess it wasn't, I wasn't sure who we were asking, you know, opinion on stuff. Like if someone's doing it from the outside or from the inside, but I think we kind of went into this a bit earlier. So no, that's funny though. It sort of opens a whole rabbit hole. Like in, in total, I agree with you, but I think that there's a lot of things like, like because, because you wanted to sort of wrap it up, right? There, there are a lot of complexities, you know, who where you know other people also get affected and you know who pays for it and you know all those things become big political debates and overall i agree with you that it should be uh, allowed and so on but i think that there are people who um, who have points about how things are set up currently right like there's a whole you know women's sports and you know if you have sex with someone as a trans person should you then have to tell them that you're trans and so on isn't it actually usually pretty obvious once you're having sex with them? Well, I think for most trans people, probably yes, but there are exceptions. And, you know, I, I'm trying to sort of not go into too much detail because it, it's sort of a huge can of worms to open. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's sort of like with the old guy failure thing, right? Like you, you thought, oh, it's, it's you know, simple enough, right? But then it turns out that there are all these other things, right? I can understand why people wouldn't want to pay from the public purse for someone who like is not feeling great emotional distress right like if you aren't suffering from gender dysphoria and 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 that's sort of also where the controversy comes in because you know also gynophilic trans women would generally say that they feel gender dysphoria right if this does not get appropriately taken into account when you make these sorts of uh discussions right then you know it gets controversial and you know then people say ah they they lie and you know you know, right, it, it becomes right. a giant thing, right? <laughs> I think in general, that's that's not for the public to decide. It's for the person's doctor to or or psychiatrist or whatever to be like, no, in my professional opinion, this person actually suffers a lot of, you know, a lot of distress that, that they are suffering because of this condition, and therefore we trust the doctor so, and so, so, do what so they that, recommend. That's sort of the uh, uh, that that's sort of the common Blanchardian position. Like I, I think Blanchard okay. agree with you with that on Baileywood. Um, of course, it's it, that's not the common uh, position by the trans community, right? Because they tend to favor self-identity uh, as the deciding factor. Um, well, I mean, if you if you don't <laughs> suffer a lot of distress, I can totally see. You know, if you have the money for it, do it. I, I've had cosmetic surgeries, and I love the effects, but they, they weren't paid for by other people. And mm. I think 
that's fine. That's yes. the way it should be, maybe. But, but I I could sort of agree with this, right? But th- then you mm-hmm. run into you know a lot of people who who talk about these theories, right? They they don't like to make distinctions, right? They they don't like to say, oh, there are some autogynophiles who are one way and some who are another way. So, but those people are just burying their head in the sand. Like obviously, <laughs> there's some people who would like this, but it, it isn't distressful to them. Like for example, myself. The the problem is that many of the people who bury their heads in the sand, they are the ones who are delivering the treatment. And, you know, yes, a lot of things are very dysfunctional. And Is that why it's not okay to talk about AGP? Because then some people wouldn't have their, their transition covered because they don't feel the stress? No, I, I don't think that's the reason. So, so I mean, one of the uh, big people who sort of have gone after people who have talked about AGP, she had her children taken away in court. Uh, I, I, oh, Jesus. I don't think she did anything abusive. I, I mean, I haven't looked into the case in detail, but I haven't heard any credible claims that she did anything abusive. Even There's a long history of crazy stuff in this area. And yeah. the crazy stuff seems to happen on all sides. That's pretty fucked up. I don't know. I, I just, I like knowing things that are true. And I think it's always bad to censor things that are true. Like, you know, male AGP exists is not a thing that should be censored because it's kind of obvious. I, I don't think that this is so much the thing that gets censored. I mean, technically it does, but I, I have not had much problem talking about that. The, the part where it becomes problematic is when one then starts um, having all of these, you know, stronger theories asserting, uh, you know, all the trans women are in denial about HP and so on. Oh and, well, I, I but, think but, that's well, 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 <laughs> then someone need to would need to provide evidence of that because it's we well, I'm so, sure we all know people who are not that way as well. So the the thing is, there are studies things like you know Blanchard studies found that you know eighty percent of trans women who were attracted to women had been aroused uh, had become aroused by wearing women's clothes. Okay. So there are some statistics on it. And then, oh, how do these statistics relate to, for instance, modern day stuff and to other forms of ADP? But that doesn't address how much distress they feel at being male. Right. So so I I think trans women generally, including ADP trans women, generally feel a lot of distress about being male. I mean, I certainly do, but, you know. You, you know, you, you apparently don't do, right? So, so there's an interesting question of what is the distinction? Uh, I don't know. Well, I mean, I, I dislike being this particular sex, but again, it's not, yeah. it's not something that is so bad that I need to change my entire biology to deal with right. it. And, you know, of course, that, that's also where you get problems, right? Because, you know, then if something is to an extent continuous, then where do you set the line? And, you know, if the, a doctor does set the line one place, then another doctor might set it in another place, and then you could, you know, go shopping for sympathetic doctors. And, you know, it, it's a whole big can of worms that gets very complicated. I see, I and see. So, so actually, that that's sort of part of the, the trouble. So, so the, the sort of an easy shelling point where you just say, you know, you are ultra restrictive with transitions, right? And then there's an easy shelling point where you say, oh, you are very 
open and make it easy to transition, right? And then, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's hard to find a well-justified balance in between these two extreme points. You you can sort of do it if you if you have someone who is sort of committed to it, right? But it's not mm-hmm. necessarily something that automatically happens as a result of you picking some simple value that, you know, everyone can agree on. I mean, I still like the idea that if if it's being paid for publicly, then a doctor has to approve that, yeah, this is treating something. But if it's something you're paying for yourself, there's absolutely no restrictions of any kind. It's your money. It's your body. Do whatever you want. I mean, does that seem unreasonable? Um, I mean, I, I think a lot of the unreasonability comes down to the uh, to the approval process. Uh, I mean, so so for for instance, um, one, like I don't think there should be any so, approval process for yes. something that's self funded. For instance, um, Ray Blanchard had a rule that you had to have real life experience for two years before you could get anything. So so uh, for two years you have to dress as a woman and you know go live on your life as a woman before you get you know, hormones or surgery or anything. Oh, damn. That's kind of fucked up. <laughs> well, so, so, so uh, you know, th- th- that would be one approval process, right? And, you know, you, right. you, you, you agree that's fucked up, right? So, you know, what should yeah. you use instead, right? That's sort of the big question, right? And, you know, some people think, you know, that this is a reasonable approval process because, you know, it, it guarantees that you don't get regrets and you know but you know i i would agree that it's pretty extreme right but you know what what do you want to do instead right so yeah well i guess that's where the fight is being fought right now um yeah i'm i'm just glad that we are getting some more actual light shown on what is the situation on the ground what facts actually exist as opposed to just what would we prefer to be true and uh, once we know what actually is true then we can fight with some map of what we're fighting over as opposed to random flailings at each other and exerting sheer political powers. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I'm not sure how much progress people will make on getting a good map, but I guess we'll see. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, I've, I've done some things, but, you know. Yeah, you're you're just... chipping away at that, too. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for joining us. If we have any follow-up questions, I will contact you and see if I can uh, drop your answers into our next feedback section. Yes. Awesome. Uh, Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks again for your time. Yes, no problem. See you. Okay, well, we are back and we are going to do the less wrong posts, yes? That sounds like a good plan to me. Cool. Oh, but first. Yes. Quick feedback from uh, Townsend Cooper on uh, Patreon. Um, So regarding Georgia's land taxes, I was struggling to come up with ideas of like renting undeveloped land. Mm -hmm. And there was a fun example of, uh, or two of them, grazing rights and hunting leases. And uh, so apparently people pay to graze their animals on undeveloped land and Mm -hmm. like people who own undeveloped land also have hunting rights. Um, And so, you know, if you own a ton of acreage, I guess you can rent out parts of it or give some license. You have to coordinate with whatever state boards or something. Let me just read this thing here. It says people pay to graze their animals on undeveloped land and also have hunting rights for certain seasons of the year. This is extremely common in rural America, especially with respect to grazing rights. This can get quite complex as there's an interaction between land values that vary for entirely un- unrelated reasons, animal feed prices, beef prices, and weather, among other factors. I graze my animals on my own land, so this is about as much as I know about it, but I know it's a big issue out here. Neat. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That is an actual use of land that you don't do fuck all with. I love it. And it's a smart <laughs> use of it. It is. Yeah. 
Yeah, even land that like the Sahara that you don't do anything with, you could put solar panels on now, I guess. Yeah, why not? Yeah, love it. All right. Well, shall we get into the less wrong posts now? Then <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> okay. Uh, the oh man, it is uh, Evo Psych Week. Uh, so the first post is rational versus scientific Ev Psych. He he just says Ev Psych. I, I believe now everyone has kind of defaulted to calling it Evo Psych because it's easier to say. It definitely is. Yes. But anyways, he, he relates about this time that he was looking in the fridge, waiting for the ketchup to jump in front of him, and then came up with this idea that men are hunters. So if we, uh, in the ancestral environment, men are hunters. So if we can't find our prey, we instinctively freeze motionless and wait for it to wander into our field of vision. Women are gatherers, so they move things around and look behind them. Um, this seemed... Like very much the kind of lol evo psych sort of thing that people lol at nowadays. Yeah, do you concur? I mean, yeah, but to be to be fair or to be clear, rather. Mm-hmm. So he says, you know, this is the sort of just so story that people make up and get criticized for. And he says, yeah, well, fine. he wasn't. But he says, well, fine. But I bet it's still true. I have no idea why he's confident in that. Yeah, like I, I, this is the. I think that is the one of the weakest explanations I can imagine. Like, I think his mom probably has more experience looking for shit she can't find because she's older, right? right? Yeah. So she moves stuff in the fridge or she put it there. Right. You know, like maybe there's more evidence than he has from this one story. But if I was trying to explain this one incident of me staring vacantly at the fridge and somebody comes up and be like, oh, it's behind this. I would Mm -hmm. assume that they put it there Mm -hmm. before I assumed going back 80,000 years of, you know, generations of hominids hunting on the savannah, right? Yeah. So I'm kind of amazed that he took this. You know, and he even said, well, fine, but I bet it's still true. But he should have yeah. said, well, fine, but I bet I can make a case for it. Right. So, I mean, he, he, the rest of the post is very interesting. But the fact the, that he goes with, I bet it's still true, was made me scratch my head. I'm glad it wasn't just me. Yeah. Okay. Maybe he has updated on that position or or maybe he has found compelling new evidence that backs him up. I hope he's right. Like that. Really? Like, uh, uh, yeah. Just, just because like there, for, as far as I'm concerned, he shouldn't be like, that makes no sense. Right. And so it would be funny if he was. That would be awesome. Yeah. All right. Uh, So he pulled out this thing, which I thought uh, was a cool point. It's kind of long, but I'll try to read it fast. There's some people who will, if you just tell them the refrigerator hypothesis, and snort and say that's an untestable just-so story and dismiss it out of hand. But if you start telling them about the idea of the gaze tracking experiment... uh, And the explain the evolutionary motivation, he had a whole experimental... Uh, setup that you could do to you know test if this is actually a thing or not uh or or at least in theory this was like an idea that you could test with this this uh gaze tracking thing he said they will say huh that might be right because then you see you are proposing a scientific hypothesis in the earlier case you were just making up a story without testing it which is very unscientific unscientific we all know that scientific hypotheses are more likely to be true than unscientific ones if you have a hypothesis you have not figured out how to test with an organized rigorous experiment, then your hypothesis is not scientific. When you figure out how to do an experiment, and more importantly, set out to do the experiment, then your hypothesis becomes scientific indeed. You are judging probabilities using the affect heuristic, and you know that science is a good thing, then making the jump from merely rational to scientific might seem to raise the probability. And this is where I thought he had a good point, because really nothing has changed. Like first someone came up with a, a crazy, I'm looking for the ketchup to jump in front of me idea. And uh, people say that's dumb. 
And then he comes up with like, well, but hold on, here's a way you could possibly test that. And then if someone else were said, huh, okay, that seems more scientific. So uh, it, it seems to be more likely. Like all, all that was done was someone proposed a way to test it. That shouldn't change the likelihood of how likely it is to be true, right? I'm glad that you hit that point because as I was thinking about it again, because my first read, I'm like, well, of course, being able to test it raises the reasonability, reason, reasonableness of believing in it, right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I, I think I, I maybe it was affect heuristicking or maybe I was just not properly grokking what he was saying here. So what he's saying is like, all right, I've got proposition A. Does it sound reasonable? Mm-hmm. And then I've got proposition A. Here's how I would test it. And people would judge the second second situation as more likely than the first, even though yeah. you've got the same proposition. Yeah. So the proposition is and the same level of, of reasonableness based on whether or not you can test it. I suppose that makes sense. Uh, what you could say, though, is that, yeah, it is like, you know, what well, I think what I would say to this is like, not that it's scientific. I, in fact, I, I find the, the idea of this study to, I don't think it would bear any fruit. But what I could say is like, okay, that is a reasonable thing to investigate. That, that's interesting, right? Mm-hmm. I could see maybe it, yeah, being more interesting once you start thinking of ways to test it because that's just kind of like an interesting, inherently interesting mental task exercise. But I, I do think that this may be a thing that made people think, lend more credence to stuff just because it is now suddenly associated with science, uh, science, science, scientism, <laughs> whatever that 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 it makes it seem more reasonable for no good reason. And maybe that's like why both Evo Psych con- caught on with some people and also why it got a bad name. Because just making up a story about like, oh, this might be why this is true shouldn't really change how likely something is to be true or not. And therefore, people who are swayed by like, oh, this might be true because this may be happening in the ancestral environment would become very annoying to, uh, to people very soon, very quickly, right? Yeah, I, I have to imagine that Evo Psych caught on because on the one hand, it's like, it's intriguing, you know, oh, look, we mm. can, we can uh, explain some of our behaviors by, by extrapolating what we think our ancestors might've been motivated to do. Um, you know, there's something kind of capturing about that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I could see it getting derided because, you know, you can't test any of this stuff. You can't go grab a hundred of our ancient ancestors and do science at them. Um, mm-hmm. So I could see how like very hard, uh, whatever Popperian scientists maybe might, mm-hmm. uh, you know, draw contention with that. Well, also like it just, someone could say something like, well, women are shorter because when they gave birth, the baby didn't have as far to fall if they were <laughs> shorter. So it was more likely to survive the birth. And then if someone said, Oh yeah, huh? I guess so. That's, that's a good point. Like soon people would really start to roll their eyes at any Evo psych explanation because making up a story shouldn't convince you of something that you, you can just measure in the real world, whether it's true or not that, uh, that this is a thing that happens when, when women give birth, if babies suffer concussions or not based on the tallness of a woman. Also, that's not psychology, right? Right, right. But, yeah. That's no, a good but, point. But, but point taken. I mean, my first thought was like, I'd like to show you the giraffe. Where yeah. its first experience of being alive, or I guess being born, is like the three foot drop to the ground, because the, the, <laughs> really? the mom does give birth standing up. <laughs> awesome. Whereas humans don't. Um, yeah, yeah. That's you know, it's interesting. I think there's a lot to be found. I think it's nice to think through an evolutionary lens, but mm-hmm. 
you know, like as the, uh, I guess, zooming out, thinking about it, maybe there's a couple in the next next uh, reading too, but I don't know, like other than maybe uh, signaling justifications, you know, status hierarchy stuff, mm-hmm. what sort of things that like I think about with evolutionary psychology that actually bears any fruit in my real life. Mm. But I mean, I guess the, the hunter versus gatherer distinction is probably a big one, but it's always hard to say what effect that would really have, right? Yeah. Like, does it make any sense to say that since, you know, men were generally the hunters and women were gatherers, therefore men would have an instinct to freeze and wait for game to walk by? I, I'm not sure if that holds at all. And if it did, I'm not sure that would relate in any way to looking in the refrigerator. Yeah, there's so many jumps there, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's obvious that we evolved, like all species do, and we have some idea of what the ancestral environment was like. But the, it it it's too easy, like like uh, a lot of people have said, to make up stories that seem right, but then turn out not to have anything to do with anything. Yeah, like I notice right now that I'm furrowing my brow when I'm thinking about this. You know, one reason that we have eyebrows is to keep shit from falling in our eyes, right? That's what I've heard. But that's. And you know, I'm sure eyebrows are, are largely for expressive purposes. Eyelashes help keep stuff out of your eyes too. Um, mm. But you know, I guess I I'm thinking like, oh, I can I can invent stories as to why I'm making this facial expression. But honestly, they're all just stories. Right. And I, I don't know if I made up two, which one I would call more reasonable. Well, unless I made one really stupid, right? Yeah. So I think mainly we should let Evo Psych be done by the actual evolutionary psychologists out there who probably hang their heads in shame and groan loudly whenever lay people try to do stuff and say things like that's not how evil psych works stop making us look dumb yeah that sounds like a good plan mm-hmm. uh post also says figuring out a way to test a belief with an organized rigorous repeatable experiment is certainly a good thing but it should not raise the belief rational it should not raise the beliefs rational probability in advance of the experiment succeeding um which is yeah yeah, many agrees. Thumbs up. Yeah, that's 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 an interesting observation. That I'm glad you, like I said, glad you had that twice because um, that is a really cool kind of inversion of thinking. Because to me, my first thought is like, well, of course it does, and they're like, wait a minute, no, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Which is which is interesting, right? Yeah, yeah. At least it was for me when the moment I had that realization. So, I think the one of the really cool things at the very end here is he kind of does a judo flip at the end <laughs> where he says that uh, conversely also. Uh, if someone makes a evolutionary just-so story and you cannot figure out how to test it in any organized, rigorous, repeatable way, nonetheless, it may have a substantial rational credibility um, equaling the degree that you would expect a experiment to succeed if you could just figure out some way to do such an experiment. Uh, which is, which was, you know, it's like, it's neat the way he says, like, just like if you can think of an experiment, it shouldn't raise your... Uh, probability estimate also if you can't think of a way to experimentally test it that shouldn't decrease your probability estimate it's just as reasonable beforehand even despite the fact that we don't have the tools to test it i'm like oh, that's that's a weird interesting point okay and and it follows it's interesting yeah mm-hmm. i think for me i think in my head i was conflating uh like reasonableness in believing and probability of being true wait hold on those are the same i was thinking of uh <laughs> um I don't know. Uh, and I can't articulate it. But yeah, I guess, you know, if someone's like, oh, I've got this really cool idea and I can't give you any idea of how to test it. Like, 
Oh, I guess what I was thinking was, you know, the difference between how good of an experiment I can design or how good of a story I can tell as to why this might be the case. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, like if uh, I'm trying to think of some convoluted thing involving, you know, ice melting in my car or something. Right. Um, like, you know, I don't know, it, it line up a bunch of random stuff, you know, like nature. Right. Yeah. Uh it gets infused with phlogiston while it's in your car because your car has a high phlogiston concentration. Well, I'm thinking like if, uh, if I don't know, whatever, an icicle melted and uh, br- fell and broke the windshield or something, right? Mm-hmm. Like I couldn't test that. All the evidence is gone because I came home a week later, right? Yeah. But it, it's a much better explanation than like a small meteorite hit it, right? Just because it's, le- yeah. it's way more likely, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, just because you can't test something doesn't mean that, like, some explanations aren't better than others. Yeah. Okay. All right. I can dig it. Cool. All right. What's our failed just-so story? A failed just-so story is the next um, the next restaurant post, and it's basically him saying that uh, people said that faith uh, – there's just a so story for why religion and faith exists, and it's that um, – religion helps groups outcompete other groups and faith helps religion be strong. And, uh, he is very much in, in opposed to the idea that group selection in humans is a strong, uh, driver of human evolution. Uh, he points to the fact that humans have an equal split of male and female, uh, people being born, um, as, as evidence of that. And so he said that, uh, faith, uh, it doesn't. It doesn't have a. It's a failed just so story for why faith exists. He says if faith is a true religious adaptation, I don't see why it's even puzzling what the selection pressure could have been. Heretics were routinely burned alive just a few centuries ago. Like you don't need the selection pressure of group selections. All you need is the selection pressure of people without adequate faith were killed. <laughs> yeah, I. I think that the idea that oh. You know, it made people were more likely to fight for their gods than they were for you know nothing. So they they won in conflicts. That's not a that's not an explanation with a lot of explanatory power. Mm-hmm. You know, like um, Dan Dennett postulates the uh, hyperactive agency detection software. Mm-hmm. You know, so like the, the example I remember him giving in one of his books was like you're sitting reading a book and uh, like some snow falls outside the window and your dog perks up and it's like who's that? Who's there? Right. Mm-hmm. And the dog is like, oh, nobody, I'll, I'll stop. But the person can sit there and imagine, oh, something knocked that off. Must be like the snow god, right? Um, mm-hmm. And it, it could be in, uh, and, and modeling events as agents can, you can make an argument for why that might be adaptive, right? Right. Um, so, so at least there he's able to lay out like a chain of reasoning that I'm like, okay, at least that makes some sense. I could follow that for longer than I can follow the, well, we, they won more wars, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I Since this was, th- there was nothing else for me to pull out of here. So I also pulled out Robin Hansen's quotes, <laughs> uh, quote, a reply near the bottom where he said, there's a lot of good stories about individual fitness advantages from religion that have nothing to do with burning heretics at the stake, which I thought was, you know, a darn good point. And he didn't go into more details, but I believe we are all pretty much familiar with them already. Give me one example. Um, it, neighbors are more likely to help you and trust you if you are of their religion. There you go. I like it. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you, if you pay this costly price to signal your affiliation to the group, to the group, uh, mm-hmm. you're more likely to actually be part of that group. Right. Yeah. So when you come yep. next door, but like, can I borrow some money or some food? They'll be like, well, I see that you're, you know, you've got, you stay, you stabbed holes through your hands like the rest of us. You must really care. Right. right? Of yeah. course you can borrow some food. 
Oh. You're a good Christian hand stabber. Right. <laughs> All right, I'm into it. Yeah. All right. For next week, our uh, two lesser on posts are, but there's still a chance, right? <laughs> and the fallacy of Gray. Love it. Not to be confused with friend of the show, Gray. No, no. They're very different <laughs> people. He, he may have a phallus, but he's not a fallacy. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, do you want to give a, a patron a shout out for... Uh, they can be the one responsible for bringing that pun to your ears this this uh, fortnight. Sure. Luis Campos, thank you for being one of our patrons and helping us produce this show and getting it out to the people. Uh, hopefully we have helped clear up some things that people didn't want to say or didn't know. And uh, we can have, you know, policy discussions about real true world stuff uh, and we you have helped do that for everybody or maybe things are more confusing now alternate pronunciations could be lewis or louis on that first name so oh yeah anyway so high five thanks a lot uh thank you louis i i'm 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 sorry i'm semi-coherent i'm just getting over a cold i think and it's 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 been a bit draining so uh oh you're nailing it dude don't worry okay yeah my apologies it's funny inyash like on a bad day is like me on a good day yeah i wouldn't go that far well (laughs) You're you're not half as you're not coming off half as uh, incoherent as I think you are, or as you think you are. See, I can't I can't do this. <laughs> nice. All right. Cool. All right. Well, thank you everybody for joining us. Thank you again, Luis Campos, for being this week's hero. And uh, we will see you all in two weeks. Sounds like a plan. Okay. Bye. Oh, oh, excuse me. Apparently I'm going to have to edit that out. Nice. Mm, My bad.